Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. The term stress typically conjures negative associations. But what if I told you that not all stress is bad and there are actually benefits to both physiological and psychological stressors? So I'm currently writing a book and will release a course under the title Good Stress which explores a variety of self-imposed, acute, health-conferring stress protocols. As I've been developing this project, I reconnected with my dear old friend, the award-winning chef, restaurateur, cookbook author, and wellness leader, Seamus Mullen. Seamus was somewhat serendipitously also diving into the adaptive applications of stress. So we've ironically leveraged our mutual obsession with stress to rekindle our friendship and share our learnings, which includes this podcast. So in our conversation, Seamus and I stress the importance of cultivating balance or homeostasis and how experiencing adversity, especially when we choose the adversity, helps us with this project. And we distinguish chronic stress which is modern and ongoing from acute short-term stress and how the dosage and frequency of deliberate stressors can impact our overall well-being. We talk about how challenges and stressors when appropriately managed lead to increased resilience and activate longevity pathways and growth over time. We talk about how short-term discomfort can have long-term benefits, while the excessive comforts of our on-demand world can lead to a lack of distress tolerance and adaptability to adversity. And we also dive into the mismatch between the slow pace of evolution and the rapid changes in modern culture and how that phenomenon has led to evolutionary mismatches and various health issues and a decline in resilience at the species level. And we also share the myriad practices that we have both adopted to intentionally expose ourselves to stress and in turn become more adapted to an increasingly chaotic world. So if you're interested in registering for my course titled Good Stress, you can do so at onecommune.com slash goodstress. As is our custom, the first half of the course is completely free. I'll go deep into fasting, deliberate cold and heat therapy, light therapy, and resistance training. But I also apply eustress to psychological and social well-being with practices to build our mental resilience, our psychological immune system, if you will, as well as the depth of our social connections. So I actually propose social fitness as a regimen. So again, you can sign up at onecommune.com slash goodstress. This was an inspiring conversation. Seamus is just a brilliant human and on a topic about which I am passionate. So I hope you enjoy it. Without further delay, I now present to you Seamus Mullen. Seamus Mullen, my friend, great to see you. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. 
to my great delight, our paths have intersected once again. And uh, really to no surprise, we found out that this eight-year absence, despite that, we've been thinking about basically the exact same things. things. <laughs> Literally the exact same things. <laughs> and yeah. so just as a means of a, a little history, uh, we worked on a project, you know, I was thinking about it eight years ago now, um, uh, where I was building this uh, wellness Soho house, if you will, in, in Hollywood called Wanderlust. And uh, I knew you from New York City. Mm -hmm. I'd gone to your restaurants there numerous times. And um, your niece went to school with my daughter. With your daughter, yeah. Yeah. And of course, you were operating Tertulia at that point. Mm -hmm. um, what was the one in the, in the meatpacking district? El Colmado. Okay. You say it so much better than <laughs> I do. <laughs> then I had a couple of those, yeah. Yeah. They were little tapas joints. Yeah, those are fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so then we collaborated on a little restaurant mm -hmm. here in Los Angeles. I learned a lot about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonder that neither of us are in the restaurant business any yeah. longer. <laughs> right. It was a form of stress mm -hmm. that did not confer a health benefit. Um, and uh, and then, you know, we, we went our kind of disparate ways for a while. I mean, I know that, that you were hosting the Goop Fellows yep, podcast, the Goop Fellows right? podcast, yeah, yeah, for, for Gwyneth, for Gwyneth, and uh, as it turns out, Goop seems to be more popular amongst women than men. <laughs> <laughs> you think? Um, and then, yeah, like I said, to my great delight, we were all of a sudden reunited in Topanga, and you have just an absolutely breathtaking situation up there. Yeah, we're very lucky. Yeah. And we have our kind of commune Your incredible lab. place, which is one of my favorite places to visit. Yeah. And it's just about as the crow flies, at least maybe just like a, two miles. It, yeah, from, if, yeah. If that, but it's, it's crazy how it actually to drive. Well, I was thinking about the other day as I, I rode my bike summit to summit mm. and I could get to you in probably 25 minutes on, on a bicycle, on a bike. but by car, it's like half an hour. Yeah. And by goat, by goat, it'd be even longer. Oh my God, the goats are adorable. Yeah. So you've recently procured <laughs> we just got, yourself yeah, we some just goats. Got three, we got three goats. Um, one of them is named after my childhood goat, Sassafras, <laughs> who pres presided over my birth. Really? So yeah. There's a long lineage, <laughs> yeah. goat lineage yep. in your past. Yeah. Um, so then we were reunited at a, at a get together. And then all of a sudden we were saying, we were sort of finishing each other's sentences. Yeah, it's been, it's been so good to reconnect with you. Um, so I think, you know, let, let's start with this notion, uh, kind of this uh, concept that's been fluttering around the, the wellness ecosystem, this idea of er adversity mimetics. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we all know what adversity mm -hmm. means, and we all experience it from time to time. Mimetics is really just kind of mimicry, mm -hmm. right? So adversity mimetics has become to symbolize a kind of series of different protocols that essentially mimic adversity or mm -hmm. mimic stress, uh, but not really chronic stress, more like you know, pale, stress. Yeah, paleolithic yeah. stress. So maybe that's a decent place to start. Like how, how do we pull apart this notion of chronic stress versus more self-imposed deliberate stress. Yeah. I mean, I think that I've been thinking about this for a long time and I would, I wish that I could say these are my words, but they're not. Um, 
la dosis sola facit venenum. The dose only only makes the poison. And I think that that's like if you were to distill everything around this idea of adversity, positive adversity, um, it's all about how much of it and how it shows up in your life. And uh, one of the things that I have seen personally is that so many of the things that are challenging in the near term are incredibly beneficial and cultivate resilience in the long term. Mm -hmm. And then so many of the things that just kind of alleviate challenge in the near term lead to a deterioration of your health and your resilience over time. Yeah. Anyone that's been drunk at a wedding. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. It's so weird how it literally applies to nearly everything in your life. That's right. Yeah. Whether it's an aspirin or, you know, or, or a shortcut. Yeah. And, And I think, you know, I, I sometimes think about it as, you know, evolution is awfully slow and modern culture is awfully fast. Mm-hmm. And so what we're faced with right now is a whole panoply of evolutionary mismatches. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk at the at the big grandiose level and mm-hmm. then kind of at the smallest level. And, and it seems that, you know, society is is dead set on making our lives, you know, more convenient. Yeah. But then at what cost? Yeah, there's, and and the, it's hard, I think it's very hard to quantify what the cost is, but you can't, it's interesting. It's almost as though both the, the solution and the problem lie in the exact same evolutionary need. We have to pursue comfort so that we don't die. And in that pursuit of comfort, we... And I think it's so much of it has to do with the warp speed of, of which we've been able to engineer discomfort out of our lives. Right. But in the, 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 achi- the achieving of comfort, we start to design our own um, decline, our own lack of resilience. And you can see it in nearly every aspect of, of, yeah. of, who, of who we are as a species. And it's not only true to humans, I think it's true to nearly every life, every form of life on the planet. Yeah, you know, we were talking about the bees the other night. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll hover over that. Yeah. Hover, uh, buzz hover, around that. Buzz around that topic. Um, but I was thinking about it, I think this morning, in relation to plants, for example, mm-hmm. like how, you know, I think I kind of coined this in the sauna, like that modern industrial agriculture is to plants as McDonald's is to humans, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, you feed a plant, you create sort of convenience food for a plant in the form of you know, artificial or chemical fertilizers, chemical fertilizers, yeah, yeah. pesticides, mm-hmm. herbicides, you essentially create an environment without weeds and without pests. Yeah. Without any adversity. Yeah. Right. Without adversity. And then what happens to that plant? Yeah. The plant is completely, its immune system is totally volatile and, and vulnerable. And so then you have to, on top of it, that's when you start adding in, obviously the herbicides and the pesticides keep the immune system because it would, from, from having to experience any pathogens, otherwise the plant would die. Right. And then you get these brittle plants that are completely nutrient deficient and then old heterotrophs come walking Mm -hmm. along and they they eat those Yep, and there's no nutrients in them. Exactly. And then look at us. Um, But if you were to like take the opposite, uh, the the opposite perspective of like, think about pruning a plant. Right. Which is damaging the plant in essence, but you're damaging the plant or, or even growing grapes in poor soil. You know that if you have incredibly fertile soil with perfect rainfall and even temperature, you're going to get shitty wine. That's right. In fact, the the great winemakers purposefully stress their stress plants, the plant. particularly yeah. I think the the Pinot Noir. 
mm-hmm. um, for taste purposes. Mm-hmm. But what happens is there's a more resilient plant. In fact, this is where that whole resveratrol mm-hmm. theory comes right. out of, right? right? So resveratrol is kind of this, you know, super nutrient that's supposed to um, activate these longevity pathways. Which it does if you drink like a case of wine. That's right. At a um, sitting. <laughs> which has its own maladaptive <laughs> yeah. index. So, you know, you can supplement with it. Um, there's not a lot of human study there yet, but th- there was with yeast mm-hmm. and it seemed to prolong the life of yeast. I think that was the right. Australian biologist, David Sinclair, right? So, yeah. But the moral of that story is you stress a plant. Um, I think they are called xenohormetans or something. Mm-hmm. You stress a plant in rough conditions that might be windy or, you know, temperature fluctuations, et cetera. And they develop their own inherent resilience. Mm-hmm. And that resilience can actually be transferred to, to humans. Or to whoever's <laughs> consuming the plant. Yeah. Right. Which is a fascinating know, idea. Yeah. It's incredible. But then on the flip side, if you think about if we're eating weak plants that are nutrient deficient, that have zero immune uh, resilience, and, and, and essentially because we know that food is literally the building block of our cells, if we're putting really, really weak, damaged, unhealthy food into our body, it stands to reason that those cells, our own cells, our trillions of cells are being, are, are being reconstituted out of nutrient deficient ingredients. Yeah, 100%. I, I met this doctor, he's kind of the godfather of functional medicine, his name Jeffrey Bland. Mm-hmm. He's like a wonderful old yeah, grandfatherly he's figure. Yeah. And he claims to have discovered the world's most stressed plant. It's this mm-hmm. uh, Himalayan tartary buckwheat. And of course, from the Himalayas, so mm-hmm. you can imagine that's not a particularly hospitable mm-hmm. place to, to grow. grow. <laughs> if you're a buckwheat, that's not where you go yeah. on vacation. <laughs> totally. Yeah. You're not uh, lying on a lawn chair with a bamboo pina colada or whatever <laughs> there. But, you know, of course, then it, you know, it develops these properties that we know as polyphenols. Right. Um, and oftentimes, you know, these, these stress plants take on these like wonderful, rich colors. Mm-hmm. So this, uh, Maybe you should open, maybe that'll inspire you to open your next restaurant called yeah. Stress Plant. Stress Plant. <laughs> I just call it polyphenol. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's like a, it's some sort of like swingers club. <laughs> <laughs> I could do poly. Yeah. There's other, obviously other stresses that, you know, we're trying to, avoid like maybe like temperature neutrality for mm-hmm. example well i think that so much stress is a really weird word i was actually read the definition recently and see if i can remember it but it's um it's a it's a force that negatively imp- something like the i'm paraphrasing but like a force that negatively impacts the physical or emotional state of a living being and so we focus on it as this in- inherently negative input that there's something so bad about it. And certainly if you go to your doctor and they tell you, oh, you've got hypertension, you need to reduce stress in your life. And then you're given like zero actual action items. What does that mean to reduce stress? There's not, again, because it's it's impossible to quantify. You could maybe look at your cortisol levels and say that that's a quantification of your stress. But even that cortisol is a really, really important hormone and you need it. And you need it. Again, it goes back to only the dose makes the poison. It, it's about mm. when are you getting it? How are you getting it? And how does it affect you know the rest of the course of your day? So I think that stress as a, an insidious, chronic, uh, low-level comfort even 
temp temper neutrality is a great example of that is something that really does erode our resilience as a, as a species. Right. And, and we evolved in relation to temperature fluctuation. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have this, like a fancy little digital we have thermostat. S, we didn't have an S thermostat. No, <laughs> no. Uh, there is, we actually have an internal thermostat, like somewhere in the pre-optic area up here <laughs> that, um, it, you know, be able to identify swings in core or body temperature mm -hmm. and then, um, you know, activate certain path, pathways know, to compensate. Uh, right. So I mean, we're always we, like, looking if we fluctuate, yeah. fluctuate within two degrees of 98.6 degrees, we start to get into trouble. And so we have ways of compensating for that. And, um, and when we, and it's actually important too, that we have that experience of, of our core temperature fluctuating so that you can, it's like all systems need to, you got to test fire all the systems. And That's if you right. don't test fire and then they stop learning, you see that with our metabolism, when, when we don't develop metabolic flexibility, we have an inability to have metabolic flexibility. And so we go right. into, uh, into hypoglycemia really easily when in absence of food. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when I, so we both suffered from different um, modern illnesses. You had a very serious autoimmune disease. I had prediabetes, kind of borderline diabetes. Also an autoimmune disease, yeah. Yeah, um, and, and a chronic, certainly kind of among the top chronic diseases now. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, what these are, are, are sort of a failure of homeostasis on some level. Mm -hmm. They're different in character. But, you know, the body, as you said, is always trying to find that Goldilocks zone mm -hmm. and it's, it's programmed for that. And so when I was wearing a continuous glucose monitor, when I was monitoring my, mm -hmm. my blood glucose very closely, when I first put it on and, you know, I was pre-diabetic, I would see kind of like the Swiss Alps. Mm -hmm. I would see like I would, I was running very high fasting glucose levels, but then, you know, postprandial, I'd see like these massive spikes and then, and just, then just crash. Yeah. And you never want to see that like in the economy mm -hmm. or in the stock market or anything. Yeah. You don't want volatility. You want the rolling hills. Yeah. yeah. But you, you've very actively adopted certain protocols like to kind of combat sort of temperature neutrality, right? Yeah. I mean, I, we both have been doing cold exposure for a really long time. And I started in 2011 I think it was 2011. I read I read an article by Ray Cronice where he was talking about he had trouble losing weight, and he's a NASA physicist, and he realized that water is 20 times more thermo thermoconductive than air. Mm. So it would stand to reason, and that came from watching an interview with Michael Phelps. And stand to reason that if you spend a lot of time in cold water, that you're going to get colder than if you're just in cold air. And it was right around the same time that that Wim was kind of getting a lot of attention on the national stage. I think his first book had just come out. And um, so I was totally fascinated by the science of that and I wanted to try it out. And I started by taking ice packs from, from Tertullia that came in my fish deliveries because I was like, okay, I, can, I don't have a cold plunge, but how am I going to do this? And cold showers <laughs> were so miserable. Yeah. So I would put ice packs on my, you know, all, all around where your, your brown <laughs> adipose tissue is here and on my back and I'd strap myself up with ace bandages. And then, and then I was living in Dumbo, New York, and I would go for walks in the winter with no shirt. And, and oh like ice packs God. on. And I did that for a while until I got an apartment that had a, had a bathtub. And then I started like filling it up with, with uh, ice water and doing plunges. But yeah, it was, that, that, that was like the beginning of that cold plunging That is true. For me. This is a term that you yeah. taught me when we worked on the restaurant. Yeah. That is true cross-utilization. Yes, of, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's cross-utilization of product. Yep. <laughs> totally cross-utilized the um, ice packs. I suppose if, if there was one place in the world where you wouldn't 
you know, turn any heads walking down the street with ice packs. Maybe it's Brooklyn. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure people looked at me like I was a total weirdo. <laughs> but so did you see him? Yeah, no, immediately. I was, yeah. I had been quite overweight and I was doing a lot of things. Like I, that was my first experience with, with the ketogenic diet. And I saw mm. that really, really helped me lose weight. But, um, the initial cold exposure definitely helped with losing weight. It wasn't until I really started to combine cold exposure and breathing and learning more and more about breathing, um, specifically buteco breathing and nasal breathing, that I could see how these stressors, both breathing as a stressor, you know, we're all chronic overbreathers, mm. which means we're we're not stressing, we're not experiencing air hunger, which I think is really, really important for a variety of reasons. But also to experience that stress of being in cold water, um, I saw, and I still see now, I mean, this is now 13 years I've been doing it on a daily basis. Wow. Um, and, and plunging for the past five years on a daily basis. Yeah. So you were before I, the, the trend. Yeah, I was yeah. early on. I, didn't, I had no idea it was going to become a trend. Yeah. I just, I thought it was really fast. The science was really fascinating. And, and because I saw the immediate... Um, shift in my weight through through cold exposure. I didn't see the all of the incredible emotional components and and immuno components until much later. And, and now that's been something I'm really. I mean, I'm. I think the cold water is one of our greatest teachers. Mm. We can learn so much from it. Mm. It's interesting. One of the things that I've noticed that if you're an emotional trigger, if you are triggered by something that has happened from your past that you may or may not even remember. And it brings up this sense of extreme danger and unsafety. It's exactly the same neurochemically. It's exactly the same thing that's going on when you are in physical danger. Mm -hmm. And by using the cold plunge as a tool to get back into your parasympathetic nervous system and calm yourself when you're in physical danger, you can start to summons that same capacity when you're in emotional danger. I think that that's hmm. it. I look at the cold plunge as an incredible, incredible opportunity for emotional health. Yeah. So what I find is that, so I've always just absolutely abhorred the, the cold, cold, just yeah. off, just even like staring at a lake will send yeah. me into paroxysms of, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, so this was very difficult for me. And yeah. I, I started, I didn't start it. Well, actually I did start at a very, very low temperature. That's only because Wim Hof shamed me. No, he yeah. really baptized me at my house. And then when he's there, you, go, you got to do get 34 in, right? degrees so, or whatever right. it was. I yeah. mean, there was like, it was just above, above freezing, freezing yeah. you know? So, but my regular habitat was mm -hmm. really kind of in the fifties, probably in the mid to upper fifties mm -hmm. is where I could start. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and there's real value in that too. hundred percent. It's, it's actually temperature for deliberate cold therapy tends to be like very subjective. Yeah. It's really more what like feels cold. And then, um, but what I found was like, can I put top down pressure on a bottom up sort of reflex, mm -hmm. you know, such that like I can calm myself and move myself back into the parasympathetic. So it was sort of like hippocampus hypothalamus, like tug of war. Mm -hmm. And, and then, like you say, if you're able to do that in the ice, you know, that can carry over and, and it can punctuate other yeah, experiences. The traffic and everything else. Right. Yeah. Relationships. I mean, you, when you're in that state of trigger or when you're in a state of danger, your prefrontal cortex goes offline and resources are stolen from that part of your brain. Calories are stolen from that part of your brain to literally help 
emit uh, uh, norepinephrine, adrenaline, cortisol, all these things that will save you. But when, and this goes back to what we're talking about with chronic stress, that when those things, instead of being getting a shot of norepinephrine, adrenaline, and cortisol, you're on a drip of it all the time. Yeah. The, the impact is, in either way, when it's a shot, all of the other things, your prefrontal cortex is offline, your immune system is offline, like all of the things that you need for all of your different pathways don't have the resources they need to function properly. Mm -hmm. But if you can give yourself that same experience and stay in your parasympathetic nervous system, then you don't end up that, with that huge dump of, of norepinephrine, adrenaline, cortisol, all of that. You're very, you come out and what happens is your dopamine just starts going like this. That's right. It just creeps and creeps and creeps. And you have this incredible euphoric sense that can carry on throughout the whole day. Yeah. In fact, I think the, the latest research shows that that dopamine spritz, well, it's not really a spritz. It's actually it's a endures yeah. for 48 hours post session. Wow. Which is so there, remarkable. I mean, are you banking dopamine if you're doing it every day? So you're just, <laughs> you're getting like a, uh, I'm not sure, but, but when you think about the other, um, the dopamine is such a, it's as a double-edged sword neurotransmitter, because mm -hmm. obviously it, it, it can be leveraged adaptively. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a lot of other quite detrimental substances and activities that also use the dopamine mm -hmm. reward pathways, yeah. pathways. So to be able to do it in an adaptive way mm -hmm. is has so many potential uses. I mean, for like addiction, addiction, for, huge one for addiction. Yeah. For mood regulation, depression, et cetera. Yeah. Anxiety. It's, I think it's an incredible tool for anxiety, but again, it, to, I mean, I, I grew up in Vermont in a very cold climate in a family of people that take saunas and chop holes in the pond and jump in. Oh, and, and I've done that my whole life. Yeah. And it was always like a bravado active bravado. It wasn't something where you would jump in the pond and jump right back out. Yeah. And it wasn't until I started uh, practicing Uteco breathing that I was able to go in the water and stay in the water for more than two seconds. What breathing is that? Konstantin Buteko, okay. um, the sort of the father of Ukraine, he was a Ukrainian pulmonologist and the father of hmm. nasal breathing. So there's, there's so many different styles of, of breathing. I believe that nasal breathing is as close to the, the most natural way for humans to breathe. And that's with very slow, gentle breaths in and out through the nose with, with gentle breath holds. It's a down-regulating mm -hmm. um, breathing system versus a, a, an arousal, which would be more like Tumo or Tumo, Wim Hof yeah. style. Right. And I think there's value to that too, within reason. Like again, the dose is in the poison yeah. um, or the dose makes the poison. Yeah. You know, that too much of that, if, we, if we're already walking around in a state where we're very aroused, Doing a lot of arousing mouth breathing is going to keep you in a heightened state for a longer period of time. Yeah, it's so funny that you say that because this was always, um, there always felt for me like a, as a, somewhat of a mismatch between Tumo and ice bathing because, uh, yeah. because you're, it's, you're basically moving yourself into with the tumor into breath. Anxiety. Into, <laughs> into anxiety. Into like, yeah. Well, into, yeah. Like into a fight or flight, yeah. Into a fight or flight, yep. sympathetic, epinephrine, cortisol mode. Mm -hmm. Um, versus using conscious breath to yeah. impact the unconscious body and, and move it back into the parasympathetic, which yeah. is what I would be looking for yeah. when I'm freaking out in a That's cold. what I do. But, yeah. I mean, I've always done it that way. I use Tumo when I get stung by a bee. If uh -huh. I were to be bitten by a rattlesnake, I would use Tumo. It's like your get out of jail free card. Yeah, it's funny. So Phoebe mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> went into anaphylactic shock uh, recently. Oh my God. And um, we were in Florida 
and it's never happened before. And she previously hadn't had any allergies mm -hmm. and uh, we were playing tennis. And then I subsequently learned actually about, um, exercise induced anaphylaxis, which is a really strange oh, wow. whole thing. I never heard of that. But I didn't, I didn't think this was exercise, but mm -hmm. I saw it immediately. Mm -hmm. I knew exactly what it was because I'd been around yeah. anaphylaxis all my life. Yeah. The way you've been yeah. around goats, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been around anaphylaxis. anaphylaxis. So I knew what was going mm -hmm. on. And obviously the first thing that I, you know, in my mind was like, okay, I got to, you know, find an EpiPen, right. you know, but there, I didn't. In absence have, of an EpiPen. Yeah. I was like, okay do some Tumo, yeah. do some breathing because you're going to have a natural um you know epinephrine yeah um you're response gonna, you're going to re re yeah release norepinephrine and adrenaline which is going to help you both bind with the the toxins in in the bee venom or the wasp venom whatever it was it's also going to you know increase your co2 which is a relaxing gas mm, so yeah. increasing your co2 is going to help you calm down mm, yeah and i'm not recommending Tumo in the absence, yeah, in the absence yeah. of an epipen or something. Epi yeah. Um, but uh, but it, you know, if you're in a if you're in a pinch, I suppose um, you could also, if there's a a cold stream nearby, yep. you could maybe do, the do same that. thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think the the trickiest thing with anaphylaxis is that it's such a strange physical phenomenon that you're likely to be very panicked. Yeah. You don't want to exacerbate that panic. So anyhow. We were talking about bees earlier. That's right. Yeah. The, the, there we go. Um, to, I think that there's a, if we look at the story of the honeybee, it's a bit of a cautionary tale as to what happens when we as a species tinker too much with the natural environment. You, we start to see a lack of, you know, a decline in resilience. And I think most people have heard of colony collapse disorder, which I think is, uh, is interesting. You sent me that article in the New York Times, which I read, which said that essentially that the headline was a little misleading, yeah, it was a little misleading because yeah. it, it it implied that colony collapse disorder is a, is a hoax and the honeybees are not disappearing. And that is true. There are more honeybees than there have ever been before. Um, but bees are disappearing. And I think it has a lot to do with how we have meddled with the bees ecosystem. Yeah. Well, and now if I remember that conversation correctly, the bees that are being produced are brittle in yeah, nature they're, right they're, and, and there are a lot of them and that's not that's not dissimilar to what's happening <laughs> there are a lot of humans and they're brittle right yeah well let's yeah. like you look at covid for example yeah. i mean why was the united states and other some other western countries so you know impacted, impacted. well i have a you look at like the underlying cardiometabolic yeah. health of the our US, country. it's yeah. terrible and yeah. if you look at if you also look at I was wondering this because I was trying to, my, my best friend works for Doctors, Doctors Without Borders and he was in um, West Africa through most of COVID. And um, and he was like, yeah, everyone got COVID and they were fine. It was no big deal. And I started wondering like, why is it that, you know, Africa was not totally devastated by by COVID. And there are a lot of theories, but, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of them have, there's a lot of validity. One is much younger population. Um, right. You know, there's... Uh, there was exposure to a lot of other pathogens um, that across the board and epidemics that that lead to a healthier immune system. But the one thing that I was fascinated is I was like Googling photos and I was looking at photos of New York City. Nearly everyone in the photo of New York City on the subway is sitting there with their mouth open and everybody in sub-Saharan Africa has their mouth closed. 
in every photo. <laughs> and so then I started thinking about this thought, well, what, maybe people are just naturally better nasal breathers. Mm. And the nose, this is our first line of defense. You know, there, there are millions right. of, of hair follicles in the nose that trap pathogens, use mucus to trap pathogens. Right. Then we condition the, the air that we breathe, breathe with nitric oxide, which makes the oxygen much more bioavailable yeah. in, our, in our bloodstream, stimulating the immune system. When we breathe through our mouth, we become much more, I mean, I think we expel 80% more vapor through our mouth than through our nose, so we become dehydrated. Um, and we take in a lot more. So if you're breathing it out through your mouth, you're both expelling as an expectorant more, more virus and you're taking on more virus. So I think yeah. that breathing and cardiovascular health had so much to do with the spread of COVID as an epidemic mm -hmm. um, here in, in the U.S. And in, in, yeah, in and you can look, well, also at obesity rates, for example. Mm -hmm. So obesity, it, in many cases, is going to produce an inflammatory response in the body, essentially a, we, we often think about like, we need to bolster our immune systems. Actually, not really. We need to actually balance the mm -hmm. immune systems. Many of us are walking around with, with very boosted yeah, immune, systems. immune systems all the time. Okay, yeah. And, you know, when you have a lot of visceral fat and, and they hypertrophize, you're going to spill over, you know, all these inflammatory cytokines, et cetera. And mm -hmm. you're going to, you're going to be in this very inflamed state. And then all of a sudden you, contract a, a, a disease through a virus and your body, and then you heard about all the cytokine storms, mm -hmm. a lot of that was a result of overactive, agitated immune systems. But I, I think there's some other interesting um, things there. Like, for example, we live these incredibly sedentary indoor lives right. now. I think I saw it was like we spend 94% of our time inside or something, mm -hmm. the average Westerner. Well, that is certainly not true in, you know, cultures that are near the equator. Right. And so they're getting more access to direct sunlight. Direct sunlight. And we know that that's important for immune system, for metabolic uh, regulation, for so many different, for just emotional well-being, health. I mean, there's, it's super important. Totally. Vi like endogenous vitamin D yeah. um, production. And, and even, um, you know, I read this, fascinating article by this guy, Dr. Roger Schwelt, who's talking about um, exposure to near-infrared radiation. Because mm -hmm. near-infrared has this like long waves, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, and UV is like, right. um, and uh, the infrared waves are so long that they'll penetrate not only your clothes, but like into your body mm -hmm. eight, up to eight centimeters. And they actually activate at an intercellular level the production of, of melatonin as an antioxidant. So all these people that were getting a lot of sunlight had no oxidative stress mm -hmm. and they were much less susceptible to the contraction of, of severe COVID. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's actually, if you think about how you build your physiological immune system, for example, mm -hmm. it's, through exposure it's through exposure to pathogens, yeah. right? Yeah, you need to. I mean, that's the, it's the same principle as... Uh, vaccination too is this idea or it's not really any different to homeopathic medicine it goes mm -hmm. back to that again the dose makes the poison and having a small i mean i would, it's funny when you look at all you look at the the blue zones in the conversations around longevity so many centenarians what they have in common is they drink alcohol and they smoke cigarettes <laughs> things that seem so counterintuitive and i wonder if there's there's a component to that that by having micro offenses to the body, you're constantly mm -hmm. stimulating the immune system. 
and maybe in the right amount, they're not actually micro offenses. Mm. Um, you know, I don't think that alcohol has a whole lot of positive benefits, but one of the, I think the greatest positive benefit of alcohol is that it's a lu social lubricant. So yeah. it makes conversation and, and hanging out a lot easier and a lot more fun leads to a lot more laughing. And I think that those are things that are essential to, to living along, increasing your health span. Yeah. Well, that GABA ergic, um, effect, particularly in a social situation. Mm -hmm. uh, and you look, I mean, we know that, you know, community is essential, not just to longevity, but just to human happiness. Right. And of course, this is another place where modern culture has essentially hijacked, hijacked biology, it, yeah. right? So we've sanctified the individual yep. for now, you know, a hundred years or so, um, to the point where, you know, we're, we're lonely mm -hmm. and COVID put its wicked foot on the gas there. And now we increasingly live in social isolation. We're lonely, but we don't experience boredom, which is another, to me, another lever of stress that I think is incredibly important. You know, yeah. when I was a kid, <laughs> we, I say this to, to, to my kids all the time. They're always, they always joke about it, like, so what did you play with sticks and a rock? Like that, <laughs> those are my toys and sticks and a rock became like any, you know, any toy that I wanted them to be. I mean, obviously we had more toys than that, but there was a lot of, um, I spent a lot of time in my head in a, in a very creative space as a child, like imagining fantasies, whether it was building mazes and hay bales. And I was, you know, in the trenches in world war one or whatever it might be, mm -hmm. I would take like the books that I was reading and I would reenact them in the woods or in the barn and the, the goats would be my, my, uh, my co-stars in these, in these <laughs> escapades. Yeah. But I think there, there's some real value in, in that idea of leaning into, um, boredom as a superpower for creativity. And because we never have to experience it now, we always have an immediate exogenous entertainment. We don't have the need for endogenous entertainment, which is mm. to me, endogenous entertainment is creative creativity. Mm. So it steals, it leads to more copying and plagiarism and less creative, creative, you know, essence. Yeah. One practice that I'm hoisting upon myself is when I'm standing in line at the grocery store, mm -hmm. I try not to reach for my phone. Yeah. Just as like a barometer for like where I am Yep. and how long it takes for the, like, uh, you know, under the crust of consciousness to that, for that feeling of to creep up to, of yeah. like, of like, Setting, yeah. like reaching into my pocket and be like, no, 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 just, just be here now, look around, yeah. you know, catch somebody's eye, you know, just, just relax and be here now. And it is amazing how essentially like just sitting on your ass and doing nothing has now become kind of an adversity mimetic. It is. I mean, I mean yeah. people do darkness retreats, um, whether, or even meditation. I think the rise in meditation and interest in meditation is that we intuitively know how important it is to learn how to sit with ourselves. I, I mean, I, it's funny. I, when I, I, a couple of years ago when it came out, I read, um, Anna Lemke's book, Dopamine Nation. Mm, yeah. And she talks a lot about, there's so much in that book that resonated with <clears> me and is, has really affected how I've organized my life. I really, really enjoyed that book. And one of the things that she talks about a lot is this idea of self-binding that a lot of alcoholics use, like clearing the house of alcohol is a form of self-binding, mm -hmm. but also actually having some alcohol can be a form of self-binding too. It's a, it's a way of like fortifying your strength of not using that alcohol. Um, mm, right. And I use a lot of self-binding with a phone 
whether it means, you know, Ricky and I have a policy where we don't keep the phone in our bedroom and we never take the phone into the bathroom. And those simple rules, and you, you can take it further to, I mean, I try as much as I can to leave the phone when I go to do the chores and feed the goats or to go get eggs from the chickens or whatever I might, I might be doing. Or if I go for a hike, I always leave the phone behind or sometimes, and Ricky does this a lot. If we go out to dinner, I become the carrier of the phone and she doesn't take her phone with her. Mm. And that forceful, that, that self-binding of keeping it away from you, um, it becomes, at first it's, it's a little challenging like anything, but it becomes like this incredible relief where yeah. you realize how much control these very, very powerful machines have over our, our life and how they affect us in, in so many ways. They affect our, our physiology. We, we develop kyphosis from holding a phone. We start sitting like this mm. because of a telephone. Yeah. Um, you know, not to mention how they hack our attention span um, and everything else. Yeah, there's a, a term now, nomophobia, no. which is just, uh, is that it? Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I think it's something like that where it's, a, you know, the, the phobia of being without connectivity. Oh, right, you know, right, right, yeah, or, or your dead battery or whatever. Yeah, or dead battery or just without your phone in general. Um, and yeah, I mean, we, we, we were very accustomed to growing up with boredom. Yeah. I think we, you know, we have that in our corner and now it's just, you know, too easy to be distracted. I mean, I'm a pretty voracious reader, but I actually have a hard time, even with all the protocols that I have, like sitting down and reading a book. It's really hard. Yeah. It's very hard. I think we all, ADHD is, is, shows up in a variety of ways in, in, in everyone's life. I think anybody who has a cell phone by definition experiences ADHD at some point, mm -hmm. um, because it, it hacks your ability to, to focus and read. Yeah. There's, and, and that again goes to self. And when I'm writing, I have to put my phone in another room. Yeah. I so, mean, anyone who, who meditates or makes any attempt to is pretty familiar with that's essentially that stressful feeling of like, okay, here I am, mm -hmm. you know, and oh man, the, I just cannot, the spigot of thoughts is just, you know, flowing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and of course, you know, the target of meditation is not to turn off those thoughts. It's actually just, to, just observe them, just yeah. to witness them and then come back, mm -hmm. you know, just come back to the breath or whatever your drishti is, your gaze point or your mala beads or whatever mm -hmm. happens mantra, to be is, yeah. or your mantra. You know, I do this every morning and I still find, oh man, this is difficult. Yeah. Um, but of course, when I do it regularly, you know, it begins to, the, the spillover effect is real. I mean, that's, a, if you think about it, that's a, that's a really good example of, of, of you stress, of positive stress. It is hard mm -hmm. to do that. It's hard to sit down for, you know, the first time that I ever meditated, I was taking a meditation class and the first like 10 minutes literally felt like a lifetime. It was so difficult for me. But as with nearly anything else, the more you do it, the more you practice it, the more that rut turns into a groove mm. and it starts to, it gets easier and easier and easier. It never, but it's still always hard as fuck. I mean, it's never going to be easy. That's just the reality of, yeah. of something like meditation yeah, and the, and the, or the cold plunge. I mean, it just, the, the idea isn't that these things become, these things that are difficult become easy. They become achievable. Yeah. Well, and, and the product actually is the process. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with cold, for example, you can continue to elongate and duration low, or and lower, lower temperature. temperature. Yeah. Um, 
and, and you know, you're building up additional resilience as you go. I was thinking when you mentioned vaccines, there was just such awful communication around the COVID vaccine, mm -hmm. you know, it's certainly not going to. You know, and it was so politicized and socially stigmatized and yeah. Yeah. Just the whole thing. And certainly we're not going to um, veer off into the, the politics of, of that or the, you know, all the missteps of our public health agencies, but just the pure science of vaccinology. I had wished, it's funny, Phoebe um, asked me, we were in Hawaii and we were, had a 45 minute drive and this was just, just last summer. It was just me and her. Mm -hmm. And she's That's like, cool. it was really fun. And she's like, dad, can you just explain to me, like, did the vaccine actually work or <laughs> yeah. not? Like, yeah. I mean, everyone says it does. And then everyone said it didn't. And then, you know, it's like, uh, she's like, can you just explain it to me? Mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh, I don't know, honey. We got 45 minutes. Yeah. Do you have the yeah. do you have the 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 concentration span? She's like, yes. So I did. And, and she's like, Dad, you know, you should start a podcast called If I Were President, because that's exactly what I would want my president to yeah. do is actually just take the time, even if it wasn't the president per yeah. se, to just explain science and trust yeah. me to try to understand it in, in instead of you know telling me what to do. But just just the basics of vaccinology which is the vaccines, what they actually do is they leverage the human immune system. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. it's turning it on. It's the yeah. same thing as the, I mean, when I'm not feeling well, the first thing I do is I get in the cold plunge because I know what it's going to do is it's going to be like, turn my immune system on saying, right. whoa, wait a second. Okay, you got my attention. Yeah, so typically like a vaccine would take a dead or attenuated virus right, and would introduce it to the human body and the immune system, this kind of floating brain, would recognize it as foreign mm -hmm. and then it would start to like, you know, create build antibodies, all these antibodies yeah, until it, it found the right one. And yep. then it would go ding, 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 it's the right one. And then Great. it has this incredible memory. So the next time it comes up, next time it comes up, of course, the virus has its own evolutionary pressures. So it's mutating yep. all the time, you know, so again, stress making it stronger. That's right. Yeah. Because it wants to, it wants to survive. Yeah. And of course, the ironic thing about it is that it doesn't actually want to kill, kill you. you because, it needs you to be alive. Right. Yeah. Because then otherwise you couldn't spread it. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah. it's, it's such a, I mean, I, yeah. I, this blew my mind because I learned about this specifically when I, I was in Venezuela in the 1990s and I got bitten by bats oh, and, man. and I was asleep in the jungle and I got bitten by a bat. And so I had to go and get the, the anti-rabies vaccine, mm -hmm. which now there's a single shot, but at the time it was a course of seven injections in the abdomen. And it I was remember horrible. that. Horrible. Uh, yeah. Made me so sick. Fuck. But then I, I became fascinated with rabies. <laughs> there's a uh, there's a great Gabriel Garcia Marquez book that's all about I can't remember what it's about. This it's about this girl who goes crazy and thinks she's possessed. Mm. I forget what it's called. Um, and uh, it turns out she just had rabies. And so I became obsessed with this idea of like rabies. What a what an incredibly brilliant organism. And that's exactly what it does. It doesn't want to kill the host, but eventually it will. So it makes the host crazy. So the host will then pass the virus on to the next host. Right. And, and that's why, you know, SARS-CoV-2, as it mutated, um, was in, in some ways kind of a perfect storm because the mortality weight rate wasn't that high, right. but the reproductive rate, reproduction rate, they are not, was actually pretty high. Yeah. So it was kind of this perfect storm through its own... Um, through the virus's eye yeah. view of the world. <laughs> Basically, it was like a pretty successful but one. But it chose a bunch of, of 
bad hosts. Yeah. Well, and now, you know, that's part of the problem is that we, right. you know, we ended up in a lot of, a lot of really unhealthy hosts and that's why we had so many, so many deaths, which isn't really good for the virus. That's true. Um, but let's use the like vaccinology as a metaphor, for example. Yeah. So, and, and we know like, uh, you know, there's this whole thing like the hygiene hypothesis, right? right? So course, you yeah. eliminate, you know, pathogens from people's lives. And this happened for kind of in the fifties and sixties yeah. where everyone was hygiene and everyone was using antiseptics and all this kind of stuff. And you started to see sort of middle and upper class kids, the ones that got most sick, right? Yeah. Because they weren't subject to all of the kind of bacteria and viruses growing up right. and stuff like that. So, but then there is a metaphor to there from how one might build their physiological immune system to how one builds their psychological immune system, yeah. right? So right now, you know- It's hard to have hard conversations. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. And so how do we build our psychological immune system yeah. if we're never sitting face to face with people uh, actually, you know, engaged in those stressful conversations? I think it's part of why, you know, we have the Surgeon General's talked about this epidemic of loneliness. Mm -hmm. um, we have so many marriages that, that fail. Um, anyone who's in a relationship knows incredibly how difficult it is to be in a relationship. And I think so much of that comes from uh, a culture of shying away from conflict and shying or, or being scared of, of having difficult conversations. Yeah. When you start to learn about how to have challenging conversations, you find that on the other side of that, 90, 99% of the time, there's an increase in ease yeah. um, versus avoiding that challenge often leads to an increase in disease. And so from an emotional standpoint, the more we are scared of stepping on someone's feet or, or offending or we and because we do live, we live in a culture that becomes more litigious every day. It is really difficult um, and polarized. And it all has to do. I think a lot of it has social media is such a culprit in this because yeah. we do have these echo chambers in which you're reflected back to you, the belief system you already have. And so you become more and more um almost cult-like. You see it in politics, you see it in diet, you know, it happens across the board. Like it becomes more and more difficult to have a dialogue that isn't a shouting match. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the middle path is a lonely one yeah. in the sandbox of social media. It's just not, it's not exciting. Good, it's not, yeah. No, well, and <laughs> so it, doesn't, it doesn't sell. No, and it, it doesn't leverage, you know, human negativity bias and, you know, it doesn't serve the algorithm, but just also just, you know, this phenomenon of, of kind of, you know, digital warriors kind of sitting anonymously behind a screen, mm -hmm. endlessly typing these kind of invidious ad hominem and, you know, just endless barbs across the bow to these kind of other anonymous people right. sitting somewhere else. I mean, that is just not profitable. I've never seen it lead anywhere. No. Good. And you know, well, it, is, it actually yeah. is profitable though. That is, it, it, it is, is profitable, it is profitable but, but it's but not, um, it's financially, not profitable. Profitable. it's not socially profitable. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this is, um, this has been a project of mine. I think I might've meant to tell you about this, but in 2020, I did 25 zoom calls with people that vehemently dis disagreed with me. Oh, wow. <laughs> on some, on some, it was really yeah, quite topic. amazing. Uh -huh. Um, and I didn't, at that juncture, I didn't have any 
um, grounding in like nonviolent communication, mm -hmm. but I, I quickly, <laughs> quickly found. Oh my God. So it's very, yeah. it, it's an incredible learning. Nonviolent communication is an incredibly helpful tool. Totally. But those basically those stressful conversations built my psychological immune system. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny. I was just thinking as you're speaking and I'm thinking about this idea of echo chambers and, um, the overlap between the political world in which we operate and our world of health is, is, um, so if you think about, okay, so you have your CNNs and your Fox news and whatever, all of these, these bubbles that are spitting back and forth, a lot of the same rhetoric, because you're, once you belong to one camp, that's all you hear. And then within that it, they're creating greater allegiance and a loyalty to their cult, whatever that you might yeah, call it. Sure. And then what do they, those people get sold? They get sold pharmaceuticals. So there's this loop into, and then of course the pharmaceutical world is in bed with the industrial agricultural world. So you end up in this, these, this sphere, this kind of echo chamber that is eroding our psychological immune system that you just mentioned, which is, I think is beautiful kind of metaphor. And then at the same time, the byproduct of that is that it's eroding our actual physical immune system too. Yeah. So our physical health and all of it has to do with shying away from conflict or, or shying away from challenge, adversity, struggle, stress, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I, I believe like a, a lot of our, the inflammation you might call it that we see in our body politic is mm -hmm. really just spillover from inflammation that we see in, in our, our body. body. Yeah. And, you know, I think about that all the time, you know, just even in, by dint of your own personal experience, let's, mm -hmm. let's say you wake up tomorrow, you, you know, get some exercise, you know, you eat well, um, you have nice relationships in your life, you feel pretty good, yeah. right? You feel great. You feel generous. You feel compassionate, mm -hmm. or there's at least an opportunity to feel that way. Endogenous medicine. Yeah. There you go. Let's say on the flip side, um, you know, you wake up, you're working two part-time jobs. You, you know, your downtown has been shuttered. You're shopping at 7-Eleven. Your you little connection to nature because little, it's not available. It's not available. Yeah. Everyone in your town is doing fentanyl, like, you know, and you can't afford your insulin, like, or whatever, you know, right. like the, there's no wonder that people are so angry and so inflamed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I really think there's a lot of spokes to the wheel, but I, I really do think if we could address our physiological health in this country, it would go oh, it would so far. It would ripple yeah. out. Yeah. The, the, the ripple effect is enormous. Um, and it's, you see it when, you know, I, I actually, this was, I saw it with, with my stepson Braden recently where he, he loves his PS5 as, as is impossible not to, because it's hacked into his brain <laughs> and, and I'm sure it's super yeah. fun and I get it, but he loves his PS5 and I am constantly trying to get him to get outside, get outside to, do archery to play with the goats to go on bike rides and he's gotten more and more into it but it there was a there was a tipping point where i i said we got let's we got to go for a bike ride and i dragged him out and finally got him onto his bike and he was ecstatic right ecstatic and um and he came back and he's like dad why don't we do that more i got i i don't know why i didn't want to do that why was i why was i resisting that was so much fun and that just kind of led to like you know, now we do a lot of archery and what do you want? He wants to come home from school and start shooting arrows yeah. and he wants to come home to school and hang out with the goats and he's doing more and more. And Amazing. I see it's changed his regulation and it's changed his happiness. Mm. Um, 
and, and not to mention the myriad benefits of, of being outside in dirt, around animals, in sunlight, all of these things that we know are really, really good for the immune system. Mm -hmm. But the psychological immune system, it's, it's hugely beneficial. And that carries over now, like our house is the preferred place for play dates for all of his, his friends. So we have like two or three mm -hmm. times a week, we have kids coming home after school to hang out with the goats, to run around with the chickens, to do archery, to go for a hike. Oh, and, yeah. and that is like, you see how excited the kids get around that. So I know there is a ripple effect. Yeah. It's what I call an upward spiral. Yeah. Like we're so used to downward spirals. Downward spirals, yeah. Yeah. Like the, the contagion of health. Mm. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I, I was never a big resistance training guy. Yeah. Um, until somewhat recently. It was actually essential in my whole blood sugar management mm -hmm. deal. Isn't it wild how it totally affects your metabolism? It's crazy. Yep. It is crazy. I mean, it, it, I've talked about this on the show before, but, you know, just it is a metabolic organ. Essentially, it's just mm -hmm. a glucose sink. Yeah. Um, and when you contract your muscles, you don't even need insulin to, to uptake glucose. And um, for me, putting on some muscle, and, and I'm hardly the Hulk, but, you know, was abs it was the final obstacle to, to overcome in, in managing blood sugar. So yeah. it's a huge, huge deal. But just when we, when we think about the adaptive knock-on impacts of eustress, mm -hmm. it, it's one can it, it's almost literal yeah. in a muscle. And, and weightlifting right? is the best example of hormesis in effect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How do you, talk about like just even the physical process of, of hypertrophy? You're yeah. tearing, you're 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 damaging muscle tissue, and then allowing an opportunity for recovery and growth. And so it's simulating growth. It's actually the same thing as pruning a, a, a tree, pruning a plant. Mm -hmm. you're, you're damaging the plant and the, the, the subsequent response is the plant gets stronger and grows. Yeah. So muscle is like such a great, um, and muscle as, a, as an organ, you know, is such a great example of, in effect, what happens when we damage and then, and then recycle and grow. Autophagy, what happens at the subcellular level, you're, you are literally creating healthier cells, not even only healthier cells, you're, you're creating healthier mitochondria. Yeah. And that stronger, denser mitochondria is the key to stronger, denser health span. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think resistance training is integral to human evolution. Uh, it's just that our ancestors had to go through a really cold stream and carry a whole bunch of wood to a cave to build a fire, to have some comfort. Yeah. And we bypassed all of that. Right. I mean, you basically just kind of nailed it is that the things that were a natural part of our paleolithic existence, you know, over hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. Now, essentially, we have to self-impose. We have to self-impose it. We have to things. create those things. Yeah. Yeah. That were just natural part of life. I mean, yeah. it's not like, you know, my great, 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 great times 600 grandfather mm -hmm. on the Serengeti of East Kenya or whatever, it, you know, he didn't have an equinox membership. No, he was just chopping wood, carrying water. That's yep. it. So, yep. um, but now we have to essentially simulate that environment or live a little bit more like that environment or live a little bit more like it. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, I think, I don't know if this is what it was called, but I remember I'm in your, you were old enough to remember this too. I call it sweater gate when president Carter, you know, tried to convince the American people to turn down the thermostat and just wear a sweater oh, yeah. during, during the, the, yeah. <laughs> well, I haven't thought about that in a yeah. long time. Yeah. I know, but it's, if you think about it, it's kind of amazing because we are so used to on demand. 
uh, on, on demand convenience, on demand comfort. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are ways in which you can kind of rewild your environment, but for the most part, I think it's more realistic to choose periods throughout the day that are both targeted and then look at the small decisions you, you make through the course of your day to, to create a little less convenience. Um, and then I, I think you'll find you get more quality done, maybe less quantity done yeah. as it were, but more quality done. Yeah. I mean, it can start, you know, with the most anodyne, prosaic little activities like whatever, taking the stairs, yeah. you know, huck, yeah, yeah, you know sure. rucking your groceries, yep. et cetera. You know, fasting for me was, um, I think it was really the first good stress or mm -hmm. adversity mimetic that I adopted. And it's um, really, really hard. <laughs> you know, I mean, again, like all of these things, it's they're, they're hard. Yeah. So again, this is a, a situation where, you know, we evolved with you know, pa paucity of food. Yeah. It know? was feast or famine, feast or famine. Um, and indeed, you know, being fat or uh, let's not say, let me rephrase, putting on, on fat, fat is, is actually adaptive. Yeah. Because, and you did it in the harvest season in the late mm -hmm. summer and the early fall, because the body knew that the, the scarcity of winter's fallow was yeah. around the corner. But when you're fattening for a winter that never comes, you, you're just building it. And, and not only that, but you're with a broken system because that, that um, feasting and putting on subcutaneous fat was essential to be able to tap into that metabolic flexibility and to exist long periods of time in the absence of food. That's right. So fasting is that is really is so super important in that give and take and being able to develop that flexibility. Yeah. There's a guy named uh, Rick Johnson wrote a book called nature wants you to be fat. Uh -huh. And what he really meant was evolution, but it's actually yeah. a better title. It's yeah. Nature wants you to be fat or wants us to be fat. And um, he actually uh, describes this really crazy, interesting phenomenon that we essentially silence the gene that, um, that would break down uric acid. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's called uricase. Okay. And uh, uric acid is a byproduct of fructose. Yep. Um, turns into purines and it turns into uric turns acid. In, it turns into gout. Um, right. Exactly. Um, but, and this was an adaptive, uh, you know, mechanism mm -hmm. that I think it was like, you know, 10 million years ago, this is early hominid. Um, as the ice, as a, I think it was like one of the ice ages, as it was mm -hmm. like coming down, you know, down into what is now Europe and maybe even Northern Africa, um, that we lost this enzyme and you, what uric acid does is it essentially tells the cells to become insulin resistant and not use energy, not use substrates for energy, but to store it as fat. Mm -hmm. So this was an, a complete evolutionary Adaptive, adaptation. Yeah. Now we still don't have that, 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 that gene is still silenced. Um, but you know, when there's so much fructose in our diet, right. for example, and that fructose gets metabolized into uric acid, which tells our cells to become insulin resistant and then we're storing fat. Yeah. So, you know, but of course now we're, we're doing that all the time. Yeah. Not just when, you know, the figs come into harvest. Yeah. No, it's when, we, season. we talk about like this idea of, oh, I have a sweet tooth. If you're a human, you have a sweet tooth. It's inevitable. Right. Sugar has been, sugar has told us since our, you know, as, as, for as long as human existence, sugar has told us that one, food is safe to eat and not toxic. And two, that 
we need to eat as much of it as we can because it's going to help us store fat for when we don't have access to it. Yeah. And that's why like when you, you take a, the top off of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, it's hard not to eat the whole thing versus, you know, your body can tell you pretty quickly when you, when you've had enough pork chop yeah. or you've had enough avocados, like you, you, your body's like, Oh, I've got, I've got enough, but sugar when, and, and especially when you combine it with salt, you know, it, and, and fat and fat. all of those things and a little bit of acid, then suddenly the brain is like, I need more of this. I need more of this. I need more of this. And that's, it's our, it's our primordial survival mechanism in effect. The problem being of course, that we have a buffet of, of shitty, shitty calories in front of us at all times at arms, arms reach. Yeah. And it's, yeah. It's, yeah. And, and there's a, you know, a beady eyed gentleman in a white coat. Figuring out how to make it even more addictive. Yeah. yeah. You know, certainly the role of the food industry has not helped our cause here, but, you know, you know, in some ways, like it's easy to point our fingers at all of these different institutions or industries and mm -hmm. say, Oh, you know, you, you did this, the challenge, you know, coming out of world war two, right. Was like, okay, how are we going to feed what's going to be 8 billion, 9 billion people, yeah. you know, and obviously there's a whole military industrial complex yeah. that came out of that. And, and, you know, ammonium nitrate and leftovers. The surplus of it was turned yeah. to, yeah, what does it do? Well, it's a great nit nitrogen fixer in the soil. That's How right. can we use it? Yeah. <laughs> go, go, green revolution. Yeah. Um, and in some ways it was an amazing success. You know, we, we mm -hmm. created shelf-stable, a surfeit yeah. of shelf-stable calories, yeah. basically for people. But now, boy, we're seeing yeah. the downside. And we didn't know, well, we didn't also understand how how that impacts so many aspects of the environment in which we live. I mean, yeah. de depletes the microbiome of the soil, um, leads to, to lack of diversity in species that can grow in that soil, which, you know, for a variety of reasons, it's important to have this complex diversity of, of, of plants. But actually, I, I mean, I want to bring it back to the honeybees because I think it's really interesting around the honeybees is that honeybees also have, bees have a very complex microbiome. Mm, yeah. And one of the things that happened in the 20th century, um, it, Rudolf Steiner really accurately predicted colony collapse disorder in 1923, um, and it and he didn't know about he didn't know about chemical fertilizers. He didn't know about herbicides and pesticides. These things were not in, in agricultural practice in 1923, so he couldn't know that that was even going to accelerate the process of colony collapse um, colony collapse disorder. Uh, but what he did know is that we had been meddling with bee species. Um, since really, you know, we've lived with bees for 10,000 years, at least, at least since the dawn of agriculture, we've had a really symbiotic relationship with bees. Um, and in many ways, like if Noah Yuval Harari says that wheat colonized us. Yes. So if wheat colonized us, wheat also colonized bees, mm -hmm. um, or domesticated us. Domesticated, yeah. Wheat also semi-domesticated bees. It, it created a, a food source for bees that was, that was ample and nearby. Um, and for thousands of years until really until the 19th century, we lived in this pretty balanced natural relationship with bees where bees would, they'd nest high up in trees or on, on cliffs. And in nearly every culture around the world, there were these bee, these honey hunters that would, you know, they would climb down and they'd get some honey and honey was a delicacy that we might use for making alcohol or for doing, you know, for cooking and um, or for medicine, but we didn't have an abundance of honey. Um, and we had these great pollinators. Bees are insects pollinate, pollinate um, or bees pollinate like 80% of, of the world's crops. Mm -hmm. um, and most of it for time eternal has been wild bees. 
But in the in the 19th century, we figured out how to bring those colonies down and make them convenient to us with this hive called the Langstroth hive, which is the most common beehive that we see. Those are those green the, square ones. The square ones, yeah. yeah. Um, but one of the things about the Langstroth hive is that it has removable leaves that have the honeycomb. You've mm -hmm. seen honeycomb yeah. in these perfect squares. Bees in the wild, um, they they make round or conical nests. They're not these square nests. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But bringing the hive down and having these slides allowed us to observe the bees up close. Uh, and there's a beekeeper in the 1880s named Doolittle, great name. He he uh, he really screwed up the trajectory and, and set in, in in motion how bees are kept till now. Yeah, he should have um, done little. He did. He should have done yeah. a lot less than he did. <laughs> yeah. Doolittle did did way too much. Um, but essentially, what he figured out is that so bees have this natural. They have a very complex and beautiful organism um, where you have uh, you have three members of the of the colony of the community. You have the queen who is selected, um, and you have maidens that we call workers, uh, and you have drones that are male. Maidens are are infertile females. Drones are fertile males, and drones like they roam around. They don't have allegiance. They go from colony to colony, mm -hmm. and the queen is selected by the colony. It's the organism, and she's really everyone thinks that she's the. She's the queen. She's the one that everyone serves. She's really in service to the community, which I think is a beautiful analogy. And she lives for five to seven years in the wild. Mm. And all the other bees live for like 55 days at most. Wow. And so a single queen can support a hive for years and years and years and years. She can support a colony for years and years and years. And as she gets older, she'll choose a successor and she will leave with swarming. She'll leave with 60% of the colony and she'll go and create a new colony. And then her daughter becomes the new queen of that colony. And then she slowly builds that colony. Mm -hmm. And this isn't good for honey production because you lose, you know, you're suddenly your colony disappears and you lose honey production. So what Doolittle figured out is if you take the queen out and remove her, the hive goes crazy. They become totally docile. And then they select a new queen. They choose a new larva to start feeding royal jelly and to convert into a queen. Mm. And then they can take that queen and create a new colony with the one they've taken out. They, he would tear yeah, her yeah. wings off. So now she can't fly. She'll never swarm. She'll never leave the colony. And they can build a new colony. You can repeat that over and over and over again. And with each success of repetition, you're getting more colonies, which is what we have now. We have lots and lots of honeybees. But you're totally disrupting the natural relationship that the bees have with uh, both the seasons. Um, swarming is incredibly important for their immune system for the growth of, of, for the, the, for the, the health of, of the colony. Uh, and the other thing the queen does is she only ever leaves the hive um, for two reasons. And usually it's only twice in her life, once to mate and once to swarm. And when she mates, she flies straight into the sky and she's followed by thousands, 60,000 drones. And then the last like 20, 30, 40 drones that survive catch her way up in the sky and they make love to her and then they all die. And mm -hmm. she's ensuring the strongest genes so that mm. she continues to replicate a strong and healthy community. But by eliminating her wings, you are allowing her to, she just mates with whatever drones get to her. So, you know, Joe Schmo gets to her and over time, over successive generations, you're essentially weakening the, the genetic line. Mm. And then when you add industrial agriculture to it now, instead of having complex foods, she has a single food source. Whether it's almonds in California, whether it's uh, corn in the Midwest, it's a single food source. 
So now her complex, naturally complex diet becomes a very yeah. simple diet and her immune system, her microbiome becomes a simple microbiome with lack of diversity. And you put all of those factors, and then you add into it herbicides and pesticides, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Radiation, um, you know, uh, radio waves, frequencies, cell phone towers. And you end up with like a very, very weak species, which is why we keep replicating them. We have lots of them, but they're not healthy. Mm. And I think it's a really a interesting metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 The, there's, there's a lot of morals to that story. Don't clip your daughter's wings. No. So there you let go. Her fly. Let, her, <laughs> let fly. her fly. Yeah, no, it's true. Like let your children experience discomfort Yeah. and challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then just the notion of diversity in general, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, in nature selects for the qualities, characteristics that are going to promote survival. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, it requires a multiplicity of, of genes or ideas or whatever, mm -hmm. fill in the blank there in terms of if you're looking for the strongest, uh, rendition of anything you know, you, diversity is required. Right. And, uh, and of course, you know, now you look around and essentially the world has become ostensibly flat. Right. It's more homogenous. It's, uh, it's, um, where, you know, obviously, very obviously in, in, in agriculture, but even in just culture, like I, I went to, um, we visited my daughter in Paris, um, when she was over there last year. And we stayed like in a kind of a pretty funky Airbnb and but it was kind of cool in the fifth energy small, which was nice. Mm -hmm. And I walked in and you know, it was, it was okay. It's kind of stinky, but all right, <laughs> we're in Paris. And I noticed something, there was something strangely familiar. Um, and it took me like two days to figure it out, but there was this kind of macrame wall hanging. And I realized it was the same exact macrame wall hanging from this other Airbnb that oh, really? we stayed in oh my God. in Ojai. Uh -huh. So it was sort of like, uh, you know, Alan Watts has this kind of um, this funny saying, which is like, you know, we're so focused on like, you know, um, eliminating the distance between places, mm -hmm. like making it super easy right. for me in Los Angeles to get to Paris. But when you do that, you make those places the same place. Right. Much you know, less special. Yeah. Much less special. And this is what we're doing in our culture just at yeah. large is that we're removing the stress, you know, the, of the, the journey yeah. of, you know, going all the way somewhere else. And by doing that, we're losing diversity. We're making things more homogeneous. We're flattening the world. I mean, you know, you see that now it's like, you look at like the consolidation in particular industries where, you know, the, a, a main street used to have, might have their own hardware store and their own jazz yes. radio station and, and their own little independent press. Amazon. Yeah. And now it's just flat. All that's yeah. boarded up and there's just, you know, big conglomerates and you can kind of look everywhere. That, I mean, like look in uh, uh, like economics, for example, it's like the dispersal of money throughout a society you know, and, and the establishment of a thriving middle class. I mean, that looks like a bell curve, right? It's mm -hmm. like big and in, in the middle. Yeah. But now you have like flat and a little spike, at the, spike end. at the end. Yeah. And, you know, nature is bushy. Yeah. Like healthy systems are almost are totally, bushy. yeah, lots of weeds. Yeah. And so we need more diversity. We need more good use stress. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 
Do you fast at all? Is that a protocol for you? Yeah. I mean, I, it's weird how I, I hate to say that I intermittently fast, but I will say that because it's just become how I've operated now for the past 13 years. I don't desire nor need or have any wish to eat food until generally speaking until like one or two in the afternoon, mm. um, every day. But sometimes I will like to this morning, I actually was quite hungry. So I made breakfast at nine in the morning, but I haven't eaten yeah. since then. I usually am like a two meal a day guy. And sometimes I do longer fast. I just bumped. It's so funny. I was bumped into my neighbors yesterday. I was driving out and they were on a walk and they're really, there's this wonderful people that I love very dearly. And they were both glowing. And I looked at them like, you guys are really glowing. And they're like, yeah, we just did a seven day water fast. Oof, I was man. like, oh, I've done that before. I know how, that's how rough that is, but also how incredible it is on the other end of it. And it is, it's like this, I think there's a, there's like, there are two, two, things that are happening when you do that. I mean, there are like a bazillion things that are happening, but yeah. yes, the stress of not eating um, is going to promote autophagy and strengthen your mitochondria. Yeah. And there's, there, there's no doubt about that. 100%. Yeah. But there's also the rest that you're giving your liver and your kidneys and your digestive system. Mm -hmm. So there's something incredibly restorative about the body as a homeostasis. I mean, we were saying the body is in the machine, but it is a homeostasis craving machine. Mm, that's what that's it, right. it really wants that. And if we can give it periods of opportunity for achieving that homeostasis. That is really one of the keys to walking around optimized in your meat suit. Yeah. And I think that's super, super important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. There's all these physiological benefits, autophagy and mitobiogenesis. And mm -hmm. there's even like, I think, you know, the stimulation of brain drive neurotropic factor, like making new neurons mm -hmm. in your brain and, you know, upgrading neural function and all that stuff. So there's all these, a myriad of, of physical physiological, physiological yeah, upgrades there yeah. but kind of more at a metaphorical level or um you know it, it we in this in society in general in modern society mm -hmm. we kind of sanctify growth at all costs like all the metrics that we hold important yeah are all like growth metrics you know how much did you know gdp grow or etc and this often comes at the expense of repair yeah. So we don't really value repair, but of course the yin of the body is, is a repair state. Yeah. It's and, in a constant state of repair. And this is, you know, anabolism, catabolism, growth, repair, you know, excitatory neurotransmitters, inhibitory neurotransmitters, glucagon, insulin. Like yeah. there's always a yin yang counter regulatory function going on in search of homeostasis in your body. And to the degree that you can, adopt the protocols that helps foster that you're probably going to be healthy. Yeah. Um, but I think the other thing component that's very interesting for me as I began to fast and it is that I began to sort of witness the true nature of the hunger mm -hmm. more. So I think many of us sort of eat very unconsciously. We or, eat for a variety of reasons yeah. and, and nourishment's like way down low. Way down low. And uh, we eat our feelings, you know, there's mm -hmm. all sorts of different emotional triggers, et cetera. But this idea of, of it's almost forced space between stimulus and response. So you're going to, you're committed to this fasting. Yeah. Um, you feel an urge or a craving, but then you can stop and pause and witness the nature of that craving. Mm -hmm. And is that craving a have its provenance in a biological need or requirement 
or in a psychological desire or a social so like a social construction right whether it's around a meal or it's around oh let's get together and eat or because we one of the reasons we eat is to share with other people and that is a absolutely justifiable one i think though that where obviously there was a lot of other benefits to it and you know caloric restriction and fasting don't necessarily go hand in hand because you could eat 20 yeah. pints of ice cream in an eight hour window yeah. but i began to lose a lot of weight i became more metabolically flexible all the all these things but the spillover thing there for me was that you know if i could recognize the psychological desire of food mm -hmm. could i also recognize the psychological desire unconscious desire of instagram yeah i don't know some of my other maladaptive habits behaviors yeah behaviors um and that's where i found fasting to be a stress that that began kind of in the physiological space but it really really had its biggest dividends in the psychological space it's really cool it's interesting you know you're saying that i was thinking about um my my first experience with fasting was not an intentional experience i was um 16 and i did a national outdoor leadership school um mm. trip it's a, a mountaineering trip in, in wyoming for a month and the last week of it we broke into small groups of five or four or five uh, and we didn't have instructors with us and we did it was called walkout so you we we just had like four or five of us we had to navigate our way to a point over a four over a seven day period or maybe it was like five days i don't remember what it was but we were also, we'd had it, it had been like two weeks since we'd had a re-ration. So we were all had very little food left and we had to forage for a lot of food. We had fishing poles, so we had to fish for trout. Mm. Um, and what ended up <laughs> happening is it was like, it was a week or five days, whatever it was with very little food. So food occupied all of our talk as we're hiking, you know, carrying 70 pound backpacks with mountaineering gear and everything. We're thinking about food, talking about food. We're, we're also, um, we're planning on how we're going to be preparing food, how we're going to find food, all of these things. And it made me realize that, you know, in the world, as humans evolved, I think that our, our hunter gatherer ancestors probably spent a hundred percent of their time consumed with the idea thinking about food. I mean, it was like our sole purpose was finding food so that we could have sex and replicate essentially. Mm -hmm. And over time that's shifted to where, you know, head of household might've spent 50% of her time around food. Uh, then 25% of her time around food to where now food is something we don't, we don't have a conscious relationship with because we don't have to. Mm. Um, it's accessible to us. We maybe spend like 5% of our time thinking about food and it's suddenly lunchtime. And like, what do I do? Right. You know, okay, yeah. I gotta, you know, whereas we used to historically think about, oh, we're going to have a meal and to have this meal, it's going to require a tremendous amount of planning. And so that planning requires a lot of thought and there's a whole thought process that goes into it. And then, having the meal become celebratory and, and important in a way that, um, that it just isn't anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. That's interesting. I haven't really thought about that before, how the lack of, uh, the necessity of planning mm -hmm. is an artifact of modernity. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like for example, I it's might- It's so new too. It's yeah, really- Yeah. Like I might have a meeting, for mm -hmm. example, and I know what time the meeting is. 
but I will not know how to get there or where to go until I actually get into the yeah. car. And then yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, like, well, yeah, what do I do now? What do I, I do? There's no map. There's yeah. nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and which is, it's ironic because I, I used to drive cross country. Yeah. Tyler and I, like in the late eighties and early nineties, we drove cross country because mm -hmm. we were living in New York and her parents are up in, uh, you know, they're in old Marin, school yeah. hippies up or, in yeah, Sonoma County. Sonoma, yeah. And, um, so we drove cross country and, you know, my old beater and we had the Rand McNally, like big maps. Yeah. And like, that's how we, we planned our road. I get like a, yep. like a highlighter and I'd be like, okay, yep. the first day. And like there's going to be gas here and we can get food here. Yeah. And we were camping. Yeah. And so we were like, you know, like, okay, we'll stop at this campground. Yeah. You know, marked it. And like, I mean, this thing was like fairly plotted out Yeah, and it was great. And, you know, I think about where that carries over, like, into making music, you know, mm -hmm. used to, there were, you didn't like mix 64 tracks down digitally post production, right. you know, like all those Ray Charles records, yeah. they were like made into like a one pair of stereo mics. They knew, they didn't yeah. even know what they were doing when they no. walked in there. They had to have all the parts together, like, you know, and we, we are not in a pre-production world anymore. No, not at all. We, we are in a world in which... It's, I call it APS, Amazon Prime Syndrome. We <laughs> right. want what we want. Applied to everything. Yeah, and it's applied to absolutely everything in our lives. Yeah. You can get a pineapple in and out of season yep. on a whim in the palm of your hand. For sure. <laughs> what have we become? I, mean, I don't know. Just uh, receivers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well... Speaking of food and planning for food, yeah. I think we have two buddies that we're going to meet yeah, for, for dinner. And I'm starting to uh, witness a biological need and a uh -huh. not necessarily just a psychological desire. Not a psychological <laughs> desire, a biological need. Totally down. Well, Seamus, this is just such a treat. I think yeah. we could uh, we could make a habit of this. I would love that. Okay. It's, I, it's so much fun to talk to you. I always have such a good, such a good time. And you have the most florid vocabulary and diverse vocabulary so if diversity is the solution <laughs> i need to get some more diversity in my vocabulary and maybe some of that will, yours will rub off on well me. you can play the role of nature and, and select yeah. for the best of it How's okay that? i love it <laughs> okay thanks Thank you for listening to my conversation with Seamus Mullen. If you enjoyed learning about stress and adversity memetics, well, you can sign up for my course titled Good Stress at onecommune.com slash goodstress. I'll talk about fasting and cold therapy and go into depth into some of the content that we touched on here in our conversation. So also, if you'd like to receive 30 days of free all access to Commune membership, write us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can scroll down to the review section and tap write a review, then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review, preferably if it's a good one, to gain access to more than 150 courses now. Wow, we've been busy. Featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders all free for 30 days. And while you're there, make sure that you're subscribed. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week over week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Cooper Mall, Solana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, 
and Ryan Tillotson, an incredible team. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.